What's up? Happy Thursday, I guess. Wednesday night, maybe. I don't know when I'm dropping this. I am Brian Scott Rippey. That was a terrible intro to this podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rights Pod. As promised, former Andy Kennedy staffer, good friend of mine, Bracken Ray, joins the show. We'll talk all, all things Ole Miss, the weird season that was. Get into some individual stuff. I have some thoughts on Devontae Shuler, Romella White, a couple other guys. As the Rebels sit, as probably most of you are listening to this, um, have a game this evening um, that really kind of determines their season's fate. They'll probably have one or two more of those, at least as the, the Rebels fight for their NCAA tournament lives in Nashville that are in better position than I think most of us thought. Uh, but we'll just dive right in without, uh, without further ado. What's up, dude? Not a whole lot. March is here. How are you? This is March, as I guess John Rothstein would say over and over and over again. Uh, we've, I think we've talked about this before. You're not a Rothstein guy, are you? So, you know, I, I really was not back in the day. Um, he was kind of obnoxious to me, and there's this joke kind of in the coaching world that he has this software that texts every single head coach, assistant coach, and support staff good luck before every single game. And I don't know how he does it or why he does it. And I have seen screenshots of like 50 messages not responded to by coaches on this. But I thought I still think he's kind of gooby. But in the past year, I think he's done a pretty good job with his brand uh, on Twitter, especially. Couldn't agree more, particularly with the last part of what you said. And I find that I didn't know there was a software behind it. I'd heard the legends about this. Because it's the exact same text message every time, right? It's literally good luck today is what he it's what he texts him every time. And I always wonder how in the world he got those out every day. But having some uh, uh, automation involved makes a hell of a lot more sense because that that would that would test the thumbs. Yep, twenty twenty one, man. I just think with Rothstein, like you can't like I just view him more as a, a mascot. Like he's a way more knowledgeable Dick Vitale. Like like it's Dick Vitale is kind of ushered out into the uh, as we put him out in the pasture, which he still keeps hanging around to his credit. That's kind of what I view Rostein as. No, to Rostein's credit, he knows a hell of a lot of hoops just from a personnel standpoint and the the scale at which he keeps up with everything. Yeah, I totally agree. And and where I'll give him respect to is. Um, you know, a lot of these national writers don't really have to get out and travel to get information. But pre-COVID, Rothstein, um, I mean, he was, he's at five practices a week, you know, before the season starts, watching teams grind. And so definitely a lot of respect for that. When you guys, Rothstein aside, when you were on staff with, you know, AK or whomever as your years working in college hoops, Y'all would have a practice. I imagine preseason is probably when most of this happened. Like, was anything different when a national guy would come look in at practice? Like, what was what was the reaction amongst the staff and players having a? I don't know who came by during during your years, Jeff Goodman, whomever. Like, was it was it different at practice? Yeah, I mean a little bit, and we we didn't have a ton of scouts there. Um, with the group that we had, you know, not as many as Kentucky and the Blue Bloods, but we'd, we'd have some scouts there. But you definitely see some people be on their P's and Q's more because especially in today's day and age, uh, you know, the media is powerful for kind of what your perception is going into the season as well. So things appear to be more competitive and ironed out um, at, at times when you had national media members as well as some of these scouts at practices. 
That makes sense. I mean, like, particularly for, like, some of these football first schools, like, I imagine perception, particularly early in the year, goes a hell of a long way. I mean, I guess it all evens out in the end if you're a high major school and your resume speaks for itself. But just in terms of buzz and hype, I imagine even some of these football first schools probably benefit a lot from that. Yeah, no doubt. And I sometimes wonder uh, how many people are at practice just to want to hang out with AK rather than actually watching our players play. (laughs) That's what I would have done. I mean, if I was Jeff Goodman or something, I'd just be like, look, like this practice was nice, but can we go sit with maybe a recorder, maybe not a recorder on the balcony of City or something and uh, hash this out? Yeah, and go get some Blue Delta jeans afterwards. (laughs) I got my first pair of those the other day. They are they are quite nice. I uh, I, I'm not a big like like fancy clothes guy in the sense that like obviously you have like business stuff and then like, coaching you kind of have to. And I imagine the blue delta has been nice for coaches in some senses with the more casual attire. But long story away of saying, I just got my first pair about a uh, two weeks ago. They're uh they're worth the price. I would say. Yeah, I kind of like the uh, the casual look that the coaches are going for uh, this year as well. I mean, it's a lot more comfortable. But if everybody kind of gets a line where it gets a little wonky is when you have one staff that's on, in suits and the other in polos. But if they could kind of align, the suits are nice, home games, big games, it's, it's cool. But um, I've kind of liked the casual look with the world that we lived in this year for college basketball. I thought that was a good move. I can't believe I didn't text you about this throughout the year, but that brings me to a very random question, and then I'll bring this podcast back on the rails. Everyone's wearing the casual stuff this year, but anytime you watch a Cal game, Mark Fox is in a full-on suit. If you're the if you're the staff, like on the other side, are you just like like get a load of this asshole, or are you just like that's his thing? Like, what is the vibe? Is that sitting in this year? I guess it's just you know you're just like whatever because I feel like. You're right. Cal is doing it, but then Calipari at Kentucky always has no tie and a blazer, and Nate Oates has done a lot of that too as well. So, um, you know, you'll have some people that it's like the head coach is the only one doing it, and then the staffs and polos. So it's it's a little bit of everything, but I think we're all just pretty happy at this point that this season got played uh, to the level that it did because you know six to nine months ago, I didn't I didn't know that we'd be at this place. Kind of a lot of what we talked about in, in November. It was weird. You and I did a podcast, I guess, I don't know, a couple of days, a week tops from whenever the season was starting. And it was kind of like, I think this is going to work. I hope it does. And what yeah. do, I mean, look where we sit, you know, a couple months later, Ole Miss, you know, non-conference kind of just was what it was, but they played all 18 of their SEC games and got through it. And as someone who watched a lot more hoops, oddly enough, than maybe I even have sometimes in years past, I mean, you're as big a college hoops fan as there probably is is out there, definitely the biggest that I know. Did you enjoy this year? Like, the, Of course, the no crowds isn't great, but it, it didn't really suck the life out of things as much as I thought. Like the Blue Bloods, Cameron, weird. The Fog, weird with no people in it. But for the most part, it was still like, I very much enjoyed this in a very strange way. And maybe it was just the chaos. Uh, you were so numb to it at a certain point. But I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't feel like this year was kind of a fragmented bummer like football, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think there, there was, you know, it's somewhere in the middle because there was the side of it that was like it was miserable and then the side of it that's like nothing changed. I think there is somewhere in the middle. I, I think, and this will probably segue into what we talk about later, but I, I think this is a pretty down year for college basketball just from a on-floor standpoint. Um, and I, I would have loved to see the fans. You know, it, it, de- it definitely makes a difference, but it's not the difference between watching the game and not watching the game. 
I, I joked with you, I think a couple weeks ago, but I was able to go to the Vandy Ole Miss game in Nashville and it literally was 1% capacity. I mean, it, it was like watching a practice scrimmage. Like a, it reminded me of a secret scrimmage uh, back when I worked for the team where like <laughs> there's like 150 people in the gym, including the players. So that one was a little bizarre for me to watch, but everything else has not been, you know, that much different as well. I also watched a Middle Tennessee UAB game in Murfreesboro that there were about 17 people in attendance for. So that was interesting as well. Yeah, and that Vandy gym is already weird enough aesthetically. Like, I imagine even if it had just been, like, half capacity, it would already probably be bizarre to some extent. But literally just having a couple hundred people in that weird-ass auditorium would make just for a very odd basketball environment. Because, you, I mean, I mean, you got the weird benches. I mean, how the, the, the press box they put us in up there, old, like, luxury boxes from, like, the 50s and 60s. That I don't, like, hate it per se, but I imagine, like, with, with no capacity, that, that gym is odd. Yeah, no doubt. And you said, you know, it changes the environment. And to be quite frank, like there was no environment. Like it would just was kind of non-existent. Uh, a lot of – and it shows a lot of maturity out of some of these teams, though, because with the super limited capacity, you have to bring your own energy yourself, right? Like you, you can't feed off of any of that. Um, and the benches are spread out, all of that stuff. So – I think that that's something that a lot of these teams have really had to adapt to as well this year. Yeah, for sure. And like that, I mean, that just, if nothing else, that bring your own energy cliche that coaches love to use is going to be around for another century because of what happened in the year 2020, which is probably as good enough a transition as any to Ole Miss, which sounded like they had a lot, like, you know, after the governor lifted the restrictions or whatever, their, their home finale against Vandy, which, kind of embodied the way that game went kind of embodied kind of what this team was and what they went through this year and how they played had a little more fans it's a shame they didn't get to have that for more of the season but it's just kind of the world we live in this team is 15 and 10 and 10 and 8 and are the you know in most guys bracketology whichever one you want to look at whether it's the Nardi and they're the first team on the next four out meaning they're the fifth team out of the NCAA tournament or Jerry Palm, I know, had him as like the second or third team out of the field as of two days ago. I didn't look before we started recording. Yeah. It's – I maybe I'm just disconnected in terms of just being further away physically and not being covering the program anymore. But I've never – like, this feels like an AK team that just never really – like one of those teams he had in the down-ish years that didn't suck and never really had it just kind of goes to, to Nashville to play out the string – vibe-wise, but this team has a very real path to the NCAA tournament. Just your thoughts on their position and just kind of the the mood surrounding the team heading into it. That's a terrible way to ask this question. I just I just find it odd the position they're in given the way it looked. I think that's a really good way to put it, and I haven't thought of it that way because it doesn't seem like the past couple weeks have been like this super positive thing, so to speak, but you come into Nashville this week and you win, too, and you feel really, really good about where you sit on Selection Sunday. Um, we, you and I talked back in November, and I think, you know, as the season's starting to wrap up, what they were that we thought they were is, hey, top two or three team in the league in defense, kind of the same with rebounding. What they weren't is we probably thought they were going to be a little deeper than they were, and uh, – I think, I mean, what it looks like is, including walk-ons, they're probably bringing 10 people to Nashville. 
So they're, they're not as deep. I think there were some misevaluations from this roster. And I think that that staff would, would say so as well. Um, we knew that perimeter shooting was going to be a concern, but I think the offense may be one step behind what we even thought it was. So there's just so much to evaluate. You know, if you would put a stat sheet in front of both you and I and said, hey, here's what Devontae Shuler did at the end of the regular season. Here's what Romello White did at the end of the regular season. I'm probably going, ah, that's probably an eight seed in the tournament, right? Like they kind of gave you what you wanted them to do. Both really strong seasons this year. Two very likable guys that I think are going to make a lot of money overseas or maybe, you know, kind of a G League stint as well. So, you know, it, it's, been a, it's been kind of a bizarre roller coaster year for this team. But, you know, you go into Nashville this week, you play well um, for two games is really what you need. You need to play really, really well if, if, the, you know, if you make it to LSU. That's a very talented team. But another team that's kind of been inconsistent at times as well. Yeah, and as we kind of – we'll dive into kind of what they have to do this week here in a second. But before we do that, let's kind of like rewind – I kind of want to rewind and kind of look at what this was at a whole. And maybe as good a place to start as any where you mentioned – I find it a fascinating dynamic because you mentioned, you know, if you gave us um, Romello's stat line for the year as well as Devontae's stat line for the end of the year – I would have agreed with you somewhere around eight, nine seed in the tournament. Like they had a pretty good year at the same time though. I, I was sitting at my desk at work the other day when they announced the all sec selections. And I, I have to be completely honest. I was pretty shocked at seeing Devonte Shuler as a first team, all sec player. And I, I don't necessarily, like I sound like an ass saying that he had a good year and a good career. I mean, 15 and basically 16 points a game in this league is 16 points a game. I, I don't necessarily mean to knock the kid, but I feel like in past years, his stat line of, you know, he's what's he's at 16, 34% from three. You know, he's not quite in the top five in steals in the league, but he's at 28. He's kind of knocking on the mm-hmm. doorstep. Um, it, it's a good stat line, but I just feel like in past years, you got to really be a player to get on that first team. And as you mentioned kind of at the top of this pod, you know, some of it's probably because it's just kind of a down year in general. Yeah. I'm happy for the kid, but were you surprised that he, he made the first team? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. And I think with Devontae, like the hard thing, you're right, like stat line, really, really good, not just phenomenal. But the hard thing is for us as fans of the SEC is Devontae in no way, shape, or form in year one through three was an alpha. And this year he's definitely taken it on more. Um, and, and so, you know, getting to what it, whatever it is, 15 a game or so, this year really helped him out as well. I think that a lot of people on that voting committee are very impressed with him defensively as well. He's a really good on-ball defender. He's finishing in the top couple for total steals at Ole Miss as well. Has really, really quick hands. Um, so I'm super proud of him as well. But, yeah, that it was a really hard year to kind of evaluate, even if you went to, like, a third-team all-conference for this year. Like, who you would kind of puzzle piece one through three uh, for the conference this year, just just because, you know, for example, like there's no one and dones from Kentucky really in there or as many as there normally is. Right. So normally that's like, ah, there's two or three spots. Right. And so you, you didn't have as many, you didn't have as much of that this year as well. Um, 
and definitely, like I said, like I think this has been a down year uh, for college basketball as well. A lot of blue bloods that are uncharacter having uncharacteristic seasons. Um, so that's kind of what I think there. Yeah, that was a good point, particularly you made at the top of that, where at the same time, I act like I'm surprised. And I, I really just mean that from the lens of first team, because in, in a lot of years past, it's just so hard to get on that list. But you mentioned the absence of, you know, the two guys at Kentucky or whoever that, you know, is probably taking at least one, probably two of those spots each year. And then, you know, years past before that, you know, you might have a lottery pick from a team that's not even any good, like a LSU or a Georgia. Towards that, you didn't have a whole lot of that this year. But in the same sentence, you mentioned he gets to that 15, 16 point a game mark consistently. And I think it was actually even a tick better scoring wise once they got to league play and became an alpha. And that's kind of like a hard term to put into like a number sense. But it's really just kind of your personality and the way you carry yourself on the court. And that was kind of what we kind of like challenged him to do when we talked in that preseason podcast. But kind of was like they need him to be this. And even the harder part of that was being the alpha and kind of going outside of his personality and out of his shell. And to your point, it, it seems like he did that in spades. And I feel like the, the, the iconic moment of that, like, yes, he hit the shot. That helps. But just kind of the way his team reacted and he reacted after they hit that shot at Auburn in oh, yeah. late January, early February, whatever that was. I think it was February. Like, that's the moment that sticks out when I think of that. Yeah, totally agree. And that was kind of a takeover moment for him. And, you know, I, I don't know that Devontae's natural personality is out that alpha anyway. So it's kind of been impressive to see him take on that role as well. I would imagine, you know, Romello's the tough guy, probably pretty vocal in practice as well. Didn't get to really watch him practice much, but really, really a tough guy. But kind of that alpha go when you the game guy this year has been Devontae. And I think he's taken that role on, um, you know, pretty well for what he had done the previous three years. Absolutely. And so as you kind of look at this team as a whole and where they're sitting and how they got there, I mean, they had the brutal month of January. And I say month of January, it was really the first two weeks, right? Because they do rattle off kind of those back-to-back wins against Mississippi State and Texas A&M in, in between. But then you have – you know, a loss at Arkansas, okay, whatever, and then you end the month with just a weird loss at Georgia. How this team lost to Georgia twice and is sitting in the position there are is, is kind of mystifying to me. But like, how did they get? How did they write this ship? Like, what what changed for them? Because they're firmly on the bubble. They're fifteen and ten. This team won ten conference games as a middling rebound team, a good defensive team, and the worst three pointing shoot, shooting team in the league in terms of per, percentage. Like, what what changed or what what kind of I guess if nothing changed then what allowed them to kind of ride this out and ride the ship yeah well I, th- I think there's two things to kind of make note of here is you know the resiliency of that of the team in general because you know you and I were texting that loss at Georgia I was kind of wondering where this thing was going to go this year I mean I, I really was wondering where it was going to go so I think that that shows, you know, signs of maturity for the team. And they've got a nice blend of young and experience as well. And then also, I mean, Kermit can coach, right? I mean, we all we all know that. And I think that Kermit being able to rally this team, get them together, they may, they've made some adjustments. Offensively, still not where they want to be, but that may be more personnel than anything. Um, but they made some adjustments. But after that loss at Georgia – they go on a three-game – or, excuse me, a four-game win streak. And it was an uncharacteristic four games because this is a, I think, 
29% on the season three-point shooting team. They go 36% Tennessee, 48% at Auburn, uh, 49% – yeah, excuse me, 42% Missouri, and then um, shot 34% at South Carolina. So, like you're – I mean, this team just out of nowhere gets pretty hot and I think people forget about it. They got pretty hot there for a little span from the three-point line, and that's not what they do. And I think that that's something that going into the tournament this week, you don't want to overlook South Carolina, but, you know, I think that, you know, South Carolina has been just getting popped by people and they've been on a break, a COVID breaks at multiple points in the season. So when that, when you go to LSU, well, the issue with LSU is LSU can kind of score regardless. So I think what you need to do is stay true to your core and continue to guard, but you're going to have to make some three, three point shots as well. And if you can shoot, you know, at at an above average to good level, I think you really give yourself a chance against that LSU team. And like I said, win that one and you feel decent about yourself come selection Sunday. And adding on top of on top of your point, they scored 80 points in three of those four wins. They kind of won like a classic, almost like high schoolish 52 50 game to start that win streak against Tennessee. But they scored 80 points in the next three games in that win streak, and they didn't do it again in SEC play. And the only other two times they did it all season came against Jackson State and UT Martin, if I'm not mistaken. So, like, it, it really did. Like, from that shooting percentage, particularly from the perimeter, it was something that they didn't do the rest of the year. But it was weird at the same time. They shot so well. And maybe this was kind of a, a ripple effect of, of them doing this. I felt like their best version of themselves during that stretch, it seemed like when they needed a basket, they started playing through a mellow a little more. And I thought that was yeah. a little bit of a change to what they were doing. Do you think that played into the perimeter shooting kind of opening up a little bit? Because it's weird to say that when they also were shooting kind of lights out compared to what they did the rest of the year. Yeah, I do. On that piece, I think it's two things. I think they kind of started playing a little looser, and I, I would assume that that's, that was kind of a Kermit backing off a little bit thing there. But we talked about it in November, and I think this team is at its best, you know, playing inside out. And there was a point this season, maybe halfway through the season, where Romello was like top five in the country in field goal percentage, obviously off of a certain amount of minimum attempts. And so, I mean, he's a bucket down there. If you can get him the ball, he's a bucket. But after his first, you know, drop step or two that he makes, teams have to start doubling him. And that's when you really get yourself some uncontested looks. Regardless of personnel, uncontested looks, you know, you're going to shoot a pretty decent um, level from there. So I think it is playing inside out. And I think the reason – the other reason why they need to play inside out is – these guards can't get downhill and get into the paint at an SEC level like they should be able to. And so what happens is if you can't do that, then nobody's ever going to have to help off of you to, for a kick out on that three point line as well. And so they just, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of times where they'll start the offense and do the little dribble weave, dribble handoff deal. And, the shot clock will go under 10 and they're further away from the basket than when they've started the offense, you know, and, and that, that at times for fans definitely is frustrating. So I, I wonder what this week looks like. You can, once you get this deep into the 
uh, season. You can only make minor adjustments. But I, I think you're right. You know, this team's at its best playing through zero. So what's interesting about that is, is and you would know better than I am in turn, way better than I would in terms of like what coaches are thinking throughout, whether it be a game or a stretch of a season, Kermit's career, his bread and butter and kind of what he's made his hay on is doing exactly that. If you think of the guys that he's had in his career, it's a lot of front court guys. Like, was he fighting against that? Or what, what kind of led to, to it being kind of February before, before I guess they, maybe they realized the best version of themselves or were able to execute it playing through a mill, like you mentioned? Like, why did it take so long when you kind of have a guy where that's his background as, as head coach? I think that there's probably some misavowals going into the season that they thought they were going to get more out of some other guys. I mean, look at what Domencio Vaughn did at Ryder last year compared to he's not on the bench this year, right? And Hadim, you thought that he'd probably get you 15 to 20 minutes a game. We all knew, or most of us knew, that Romello was going to be the guy, but you felt like you could get more there. And then um, some of these guards – Jarkel's starting to turn the corner a little bit more. Um, but everybody probably expected more out of Matthew Morell as a top 50 player. And I think he's going to take a, step, a good step next year. I'm still not worried about him. But Austin, you know, he has taken a step back compared to last year as well. So I think there were some things that happened there that were kind of unforeseen as well for this team um, that, that's hindered them from an offensive standpoint, but their identity and what Kermit preaches is defense. And that's what, that's what's kept them where they are right now this season, you know, have for the NCAA tournament. Yeah. The, I think probably if you're talking, like if you want to make the case for this being a, a good coaching job from Kermit, it's the fact that he kept them invested and kept them guarding defensively, you know, through that horrible stretch. Like, you look at those two games in January, they win back-to-back against State and A&M, and it's kind of like, well, that saved their season in some senses. But at the same time, we mentioned the four-game win streak. If they don't lose a home game to a Mississippi State team in you know late Feb- mid-February, who's kind of reeling at that point, and then don't go lose to Vanderbilt at Vandy without their top two leading scores, you're talking about a nine-game win streak at a team that could probably mail it in if they really wanted to in Nashville. The, the – the thin line between this team where it could be good or bad is, is, is very odd. Yeah, t- I totally agree. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's, it's been a roller coaster ride this year for sure. Um, and, you know, they're, they played good defense for the majority of the year. They just got it. They got to get it going this year, uh, this week offensively and got to keep zero out of foul trouble. It's, it's, that's as good a transition to any as we come transition into Ramella White. And there's a video over the weekend. I may have even posted in one of the newsletters earlier this week, like Ramella White kind of thanking the fans that, that weren't there all season. And it was, you know, really kind of touching in some ways, but also a little, a little bizarre, right? Because uh, most of them weren't able to come see him play in person. And I, I think, you know, when you look at the one season he's here, it's not going to stick out from a numbers perspective. But I think anyone who – I say numbers perspective. It's really scoring because that's what a lot of casual mm-hmm. fans in particular look at. But the way – if you watch this team play at all this year, you saw, one, how important to this team was. And, two, it, you know, kind of in a day and age where guards dominate this game, he was a really yeah. enjoyable, very cerebral player to watch because he's so smart and he plays so hard. And he's also so gifted at the same time. It's kind of a missed opportunity, in my opinion, and it's no one's fault. But, like, 
I just feel like he would he was a guy that fans would very much kind of endear themselves to if we had had a normal year because he's been a treat to watch and he seems like a good dude. I think that's a great point. Um, and I know for y'all, you know, as the media, he's always been really good to the media as well. Uh, plays really hard, good kid. And I mean, you know, you're also kind of talking about guard dominated age that we live in. Totally agree there. And we're trying to, we see that college basketball is following suit of the NBA and becoming more positionless. But I also think it's fun as hell to watch four out one in playing through that big man, kind of like the Sebastian Saiz back five years ago or so, and being able to watch him work kind of ISO one-on-one down in the post has been a ton of fun to watch as well. I think he's he was probably underused at times offensively, which kind of goes back to our, you know, point of the whole dribble handoff offense. And so he's going to be one that, I, you know, I, he's going to play his ass off this week. I mean, you just know he is. He's going to do whatever it takes to win. Um, he's a man on the boards as well, can really rebound. So I think that he's somebody that's that's always going to be a fan favorite. But you're right. He would have been, you know, I think he would have really enjoyed having 9,500 people in the pavilion for some of these games as well. Right, because there's a couple, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, unfortunately, but like there's a couple moments this year where he would have had a moment in that gym. And it would have yep. gone nuts, and it kind of would have propelled kind of the Romello White, um, you know, moment, career, whatever you want to call it at Ole Miss. And it, it's a shame he wasn't able to get that. But, man, what a what an invaluable piece. You talk about some missed evals. He was he was not one of them. And it, it's a shame he kind of didn't get the full full experience at Ole Miss because he, he was a, a treat to watch, but also still going to be very important down the stretch of this season. And you mentioned kind of the – the guys they were hoping they would get more from. And, you know, we talk about missed evals. Like, sometimes it's maybe, like we mentioned, from Morell's sense or Crowley taking a step back. Like, missed eval makes it sound like they, they missed on the kid just getting him to campus. And, like, that's the case most of the time. But in some senses, it's just Jarkel seemed like a late bloomer, right? You thought you were going to mm-hmm. get a little more out of Morell. Crowley took a step yep. back. I guess let's start with Jarkel. You made a point earlier about this team kind of doesn't – wasn't able to get downhill from a guard standpoint like a lot of guys in this – like a lot of teams in this league are. I think you put it at an SEC level. Is that kind of the biggest thing with him individually? Because that I never remember questioning that heading into this year. And you're right, it was absolutely true. He's turned the corner, been better in league play. But is that kind of the one thing that sticks out to you that just was lacking that needed to be there for him to have a more complete season? Yeah, and I think that's something they'll push on him in the offseason because he is super athletic, right? And he's been able to – score at three different levels throughout most of his career. And so I think that that's going to be something they're going to push on him a lot um, in the off season. He's athletic enough. And so, and then a second thing there is from a quantity standpoint, I think he needs to shoot more threes. Um, Mid range jumpers in today's day and age, it's kind of like a no, no, no. Yes. Good shot. You know, like every time he shoots a mid range jumper, it's like, Oh no, no, no. And he, Early in the season, he missed a lot of them. But he, like you said, late bloomer, he's really starting to kind of turn it on and, and find a groove. I think that what we thought as a fan base is, hey, he was going to have five or more 20-plus games, you know, or maybe even more than that. And we didn't really see that. So he hasn't gotten the volume scoring that we thought he would. But I think next year he's going to have to take that, uh, that role as well. 
And if he continues the trajectory that he's on and that he's played in the second half of this year, I, I think that's absolutely a realistic possibility. And mm-hmm. the, the, particularly the, the first part you mentioned and the last part you mentioned, I, I could not agree more with to where he missed so many shots and it was kind of the same with Morell a little bit. They started off so poorly. You know, you talk about shooters not really caring if they miss seven in a row. They think the seventh and eighth one's going down. That's great right. if you're J.J. Redick and making, you know, eight figures in the NBA over two decades. Right. But when you're particularly a new guy trying to do yourself to a program and kind of prove yourself, whether it be coming out of high school as a highly touted recruit like Morell or Jarkel, you know, coming up a level and he even had a year of hype around him, which may have worked to his detriment a little bit. That's got to take a toll on you. Like that just has to shake your confidence a little bit. And you probably saw some of that, but at the same time, you know, if you, you talk about changing this team's ceiling, either one of them, and I think it was more, more on Jarkel because, you know, Morrell is highly touted as he was as a freshman. If one of those dudes is, is right there with Schuler at 15 a game and you're talking about this backcourt tandem plus Romello, you're talking about a completely different team, right? Oh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And off Jarkel's point, you know, I think Morrell is one that top 50 player, like we were all waiting for the Matthew Morrell game, and he definitely had some – good games like really good games but he never had like that breakout party and so I think one thing that's huge with him you know no matter what happens this week if we go to the tournament if we go to the NIT like I think he needs a strong ending to this season if he can get going and have a few double digit games to end this season I think that could really help his confidence and you're right he just needs to see some shots go down it kind of seemed like a confidence thing for him. But like I said earlier, I'm not worried about him at all uh, going into sophomore year. Freshman to sophomore year is always the biggest leap you'll see in college basketball. And I think that he's going to be one that uh, we definitely see that as well going into the 2021-2022 season. Is that kind of what – I mean, if you're if you're trying to sell tickets to Ole Miss basketball next year, you're in the whatever office you work out of, is that kind of what you're selling? Is those two in the backcourt and maybe they add an impact transfer guy in the frontcourt and it kind of looks like the same team on paper in some senses? Like, is that kind of what you're selling next year? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, Ruffin's definitely going to be kind of the sexy thing <laughs> as well. First, right, I forgot about yeah. it. Yeah, first McDonald's All-American coming for Ole Miss. But, I mean, you look at it, you're lo- you lose four seniors. Sean Robinson's already transferring. Um, and then, you know, dude column, I mean, who knows what's going to happen there. So that's six spots. You've got three high school guys coming in. I mean, that's three spots for transfers, right? So I would imagine this staff hits the transfer market pretty hard. And I think the formula for winning at Ole Miss is to do so – and to also, you know, hit on some pretty solid high school guys that can contribute year one or year two. Yeah, you mentioned Ruffin at the top of that, and it was like, you know, I made a point the other day. I felt like, you know, they finished the regular season, and I was writing in that in one of the first newsletters I did. I felt like I was, like, writing the team's obit, which was, like, not the intention at all. But I couldn't help just with the way things – the vibe we talked about in this – just to kind of spin it forward to next year. And it's like, they need more consistent perimeter scoring. You know, can I introduce you to this McDonald's All-American they have coming in, right. which who, hopefully he'll be electric and fantastic, but that's a good point. But, you know, there's also a chance that you know, all three of them kind of pan out and they end up being kind of a, a real problem to deal with. But I agree with your point. Yep. On, you know, you got to hit on those transfers too, um, yep. particularly in the front court. 
you know, as we kind of before we kind of spin this forward and what they have to do this week, one last thing on Schuler. He comes in, he was kind of AK's roughing in some ways in terms of like him being the highest guy, not mistaken, he was one of, if not the highest guy they yeah. got on campus, um, at least out of high school ever. You know, he was good defensively from day one, struggled as a scorer sometimes, battled through a lot of injuries and a lot of other stuff that mm-hmm. I don't think people saw all the time. Um, you know, particularly that that junior year where Kermit makes the tournament. And that kid is, one, playing point guard for them and doing it seamlessly very well, while also playing on one foot. Mm-hmm. He's tougher. He almost reminds me of Eli Manning in some senses, where he's not like this boisterous personality, but he's tough as hell. Yeah. And never missed a, this is a game. Hell, he didn't miss a game this year. If you're trying to describe his legacy from someone that worked around him and worked with him, what do you think his legacy yeah. could be in all this? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, Devonte was one of my favorite guys that I ever worked for in the four years I was on staff. A really good kid, good family, um, always smiling. And I think that, you know, to your point, I mean, a coaching change, injuries, a position change. His dad passed away while he was playing. Um, first time that he's ever, you know, one of the first times he's not played with his brother. His brother's at middle now. So, you know, he, he went through a lot. Um, he battled a lot of adversity. And in a way, even though his game kind of doesn't seem like it, he, I think his legacy is kind of a, a grinder that just kind of kept battling for Ole Miss. And his every, everything changed for him, right? Like we said, his position changed, his coach changed. He went from being the three-year follower to now having to be the alpha. And so I think his evolution as a player and his at adaptability was huge um and you know hopefully in a positive sense that this week and going forward maybe another week or two will help his legacy as well absolutely and that's a great great way to segue into what they need to do this week and you know South Carolina game aside we'll kind of move past that because if they can't win that game then there's really no point in having this conversation I mean they're that team's destroyed with COVID they don't really look like they want to be there anymore Whatever you make of Frank and however they want, whatever his situation is at the end of the year with the New Mexico job opening up, like, I don't know, but it's not a team that's fully there. There's a couple of teams that go to the SEC tournament next, next year that are there physically and suiting up right. and perform, but are absolutely somewhere else mentally. And I, yeah. I, I don't know, one reason sticks out, and I have no idea where this guy is to this day, but I remember sitting in on a Kim Anderson press conference after he'd already been canned before he got there. And he was trying his hardest, poor guy, to answer everyone's questions and talk well about his players. But you could tell it was like, this guy would rather be anywhere else on earth than on a basketball court right now. And I feel like that's where South Carolina is. So moving past that, I don't necessarily love their matchup against LSU. As you mentioned, yeah. LSU is going to score regardless. It, you know, No matter how well Ole Miss defends, I think they're going to have to play at a level offensively Friday night should they make it there that they haven't gone to consistently all year. And that may be the difference in the game. But I'll kind of give leave an open floor to you there before we kind of get into what the resume looks like. What do you think they need to do to beat LSU on Friday night if they get there? Well, I think it, it, it's um, you got to stay to your identity, play well defensively. LSU, I believe, even though the roster looks like it would be, they're not a great rebounding team. So you got to really take advantage of that from your rebound Martian uh, margins as well and then I think you got to make you got to make some three-pointers I mean you got to make the open shots in the games that 
Ole Miss has kind of snuck up on some people and, you know, beaten some of these top 25 teams. They've done, they put both together, right? They've guarded and they've shot at a 40% plus clip. So, you know, like we said, LSU kind of inconsistent, but their offense is good enough to where they can score on this team defensively. So not only are you going to have to guard, but you're going to have to make some shots on the other end as well. And so say, I mean, hell, it doesn't matter. Win, lose, whatever. Just for the sake, I guess for the sake of the argument, let's just say they do beat LSU. I think kind of the debate was coming into this week, and it may depend on their opponent Saturday, if should they advance past LSU on Friday night. Yeah. And I, it also a million other things in terms of bid stealers and who's around them. Yeah. In gut feeling, everything else aside, I know there's a million factors away. If they do beat LSU on Friday, do you think that's enough, or do they need to kind of you know, make sure that hammer's in the wood and win again and get to Sunday? It's almost got like a 2013 vibe in that, just kind of a day off, Saturday to Sunday, yeah. Friday to Saturday. A little bit, and I don't know that this team needs quite as much as that 12-13 team needed because you felt pretty decent about it when you made it to the championship game, but you've kind of – once you – you know, you, you won it all, you get the automatic qualifier. But, look, this is going to be – this is going to be March's madness, and that pun is going to stay true to its core. Um, I've heard all sorts of things about what this month – is going to look like previously. And, you know, there is talk – there was talk at one point about the NIT getting pushed back a few weeks so that these 16 NIT teams could stay in Indianapolis and sub in for Corona stuff. Um, that was a talk at one point. I think there probably will be – there could be some games forfeited in the NCAA tournament this year due to COVID. And then um, there, there was a rumor earlier this week, and I don't think it came to fruition. It probably should be illegal, but there were two first four out teams on the bubble that had already finished up their conference tournament, and we're talking about scheduling a neutral site game with each other. I saw so. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, is this legal? Um, so. Yeah, you know, it, 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 this March is going to be crazy. You don't really have as many blue buds in there. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But kind of breaking down the bubble, you know, Lenardi right now has Michigan State, VCU, Louisville, Georgia Tech as your last four buys. I think all four of those teams feel pretty, pretty decent about where they're at. Louisville lost to Duke tonight. That's not one that's going to hurt you a whole lot. And then Georgia Tech's got a double buy in their tournament playing Clemson, which is almost like a top borderline top 25 team. So I think they all feel pretty good. But if you're an Ole Miss fan, um, and as we spoke, Rippy, Xavier lost to a not great Butler team. Which is huge. Which is huge. So where do you keep your eyes as an Ole Miss fan the Mountain West Conference Tournament out of all places. So you have um, – your last four in is probably going to be Drake, but then for Mountain West, Boise State, Colorado State, and Utah State. So three out of the four of your last four in when we wake up tomorrow, Thursday morning. And so when you look at that, what we need to root for as Ole Miss fans is San Diego State winning that tournament because they're already in. Uh, Boise State and Nevada play each other. So a Nevada win over Boise State would probably knock Boise out of the tournament talk. And then 
uh, Utah State and Colorado State, if they win their first game, will have to play each other. So that's another thing as well there. So it, it's really it's really interesting what that kind of looks like. And then, you know, the ACC as well, um, Syracuse, they, they can kind of – they can they've got an opportunity to move up a little bit. Uh, Duke beat Louisville tonight. Lenardi's kind of said if I wouldn't be shocked to see Duke on the the last spot of the next four out tomorrow morning. But Lenardi's kind of said if they make it to the semis or make it to the championship game of the ACC tournament, they could get back in. So as an Ole Miss fan, eyes on Mountain West Conference, you got to root for no bid stealers because the margin of error is really really small here. And then this will be a fun one for all of us. We got to root against Memphis. Um, Memphis has – where Memphis has a leg up on Ole Miss is Ole Miss needs to win two. If Memphis wins two, their two is against uh, almost top 100 net UCF team and a damn good Houston team that they almost beat uh, earlier this week. So that's kind of what it looks like. But all that being said, you know, if there's no if there's no bids, bids stolen – you know that one through cannibalization, one of these Mountain West teams is probably going to knock themselves out. You feel really good about two wins making it to Selection Sunday. And, man, who would have thought this would be the case even just like nine days ago? I mean, I, yeah. I wrote last Saturday, just honestly, it just panned up not being as locked in heading into the Vanderbilt game. It was like if Ole Miss wins, they could get to Saturday or Sunday and maybe have a chance they probably need to win the whole thing. And, like, that didn't turn out to be accurate, but it wasn't that far. Yeah. It's like, to your point, you're talking about a very realistic scenario, and you just kind of saw the first domino fall where you win two games and you're in the NCAA tournament. And is, if they are able to accomplish that, you look at Kermit's legacy, and we were texting about this, you know, sometime in the last week or so. This year I felt like – and I wrote this at the time, like, assuming that they weren't going to make it. It's like – Close but no cigar and like the 2022 year probably helps put this year in context where if they are really good next year and they get back to the tournament, it's like, all right, Kermit, you know, rally the troop. They didn't suck. You thought they were going to suck for a while. Right. Coaching job, weird circumstances to where they missed it this year, weren't as good as you thought they might be next year. It gets used against him. How in the world, like roller coaster ride, there's, you know, irrational message board threads in January probably talking about is Kermit the guy, which <laughs> – find things very silly, but that that's the world we live in in January. And then you look up two months later and he's in his second NCAA tournament in three years. I mean, yeah. that hasn't been done at this school, but once, once maybe at some, yeah, I mean, I think just one time, like how, how is that, how does that change how he's viewed in the trajectory of the program if they are able to pull this off? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a 180 by any means, because like you said, it was, this thing never got as negative as like some fans wanted to make it out to be, but I mean, you go two in your first three years at Ole Miss and, you you know, you can really build off of that, especially in recruiting. You know, you don't – if you don't make it this year, you go to the NIT, not the end of the world, but you do feel like you got to add some pieces to that roster as well next year. Um, so, you know, it, it's really interesting. And, you know, like you said, looking – kind of looking at this bubble, I mean, it, it's win two and it's realistic because of how things are shaping out now – the bubble out of all transparency is really bad this year. I mean, it's, it's really bad this year. And one thing that I was really shocked on that was a positive for Ole Miss is how quickly they got back in the bubble conversation. 
Yeah. Because what I thought was when I was at the Vandy game, well, Ole Miss lost Vandy. It's a road loss. Vandy's, you know, top 120 in the net or so. But the thing is, Vandy was losing their top two players. And I wondered if the committee was going to view that as more of like a net 250 loss. Because from the games I have seen, on floor, that's probably the worst conference loss Ole Miss basketball's had since that 2013 year. Like, if you're looking at the players on the floor for Vandy at that time. So I think that was really encouraging to see how quickly Ole Miss got back in the bubble and now this, these dominoes are starting to fall where if you can take care of business for two in Nashville, you feel really good about yourself on Sunday. And I think the casual viewer probably felt the same way, even not knowing that Vanderbilt's without their two players or not knowing what their net is or not knowing the state of the bubble. It, it just felt like the death knell. It's like you really you look at this team's record and you're not able to go in there and get a win. I thought it was the death knell at that time without even really digging into the numbers that much. I'm curious, though, just out of my own curiosity, if nothing else, you mentioned the worst loss since that 2012-2013 year. Are you talking about the February loss to South Carolina or Mississippi State that year? It's got to be one of well, those, right? Well, I was kind of talking about both of those. Yeah, those, those conference losses. Yeah, both of those in general. I'm not sure which I'm not sure which was <laughs> worse. Rick, I don't know that Rick Ray ever really, you know, had a whole lot there. Um, but yeah, those were – those were that that was a that Ole Miss that was a really talented Ole Miss team that year and they were you know they were two two of those losses turning into wins away from you know having a lot of weeks in the top 25 probably so um yeah those were those were two uh I've heard some AK stories about about those <laughs> weeks and what he thought his future looked like and it it was not in the state of Mississippi I'll put it that way before I let you get out of here, let's just kind of look at the big picture of March Madness as a whole. Going to be very weird, this whole Indiana thing. I'm glad they're, you know, things are progressing. We're kind of getting letting some fans in hell. I mean, the, the two states that I've lived in most recently were the first to lift their masks yeah. and just say, oh, hell, this <laughs> around these parts. I don't know if that is, I don't know if I can kind of like read into what that says about me or the, the, <laughs> the life path I've chosen. But I mean, hell, you're talking about, you know, Texas Rangers are going to have 40K in their stadium. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm glad things are turning towards normal. At the same time, not going to be a normal NCAA tournament. I think that favors the teams that are really good and have really good continuity. I think the debate is, like, is it Baylor and Gonzaga or is it Baylor, Gonzaga, Michigan, and maybe include one more? Who do you kind of like in March? Give me give me your thoughts on that that kind of question and then maybe two sleepers that you could think is better, like kind of have has the, the guts to make a run, I should say. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, on your point, I actually, even though this is a down year, I like all the four one seats. So, Illinois, Michigan, Baylor, uh, Gonzaga. They've, you know, pretty consistently this year shown out. You look at the next step, and it's probably this, the program outside of Ole Miss and the SEC I've watched the most over the years and like the most, Nate Oates, Alabama. I, I, I wonder, Rippy, if they peak too early. That's my only thing with them. They live and die by the three, which in March Madness could be one of two things. And with that many games to make it where they want to, you know, that, that could be interesting. So I, I, I think they could make it to the Sweet 16 for sure, but I do wonder if they peak too early. So it's really interesting to kind of see. Um, I guess my sleeper team uh, this year is Winthrop. So kind of an out there name, but – 
they made it uh, – th- I think their coaches won that conference either regular season or conference tournament three out of the past five years. His name's Pat Kelsey, and he kind of reminds me a little bit of – maybe not quite as out there, but the college basketball version of P.J. Fleck. That's kind of – that's kind of uh, – yeah, so and he like I said, he's not as like there's not as much hokiness to him, but he he reminds me of him a little bit. Um, he's a guy that I think's pretty close to getting maybe like a Big Ten job pr- pretty soon. Um, they're fun to watch. I kind of think that that's probably my sleeper team going into March Madness, Winthrop Eagles, and that's where old Greg Marshall was about 15 years ago. He actually. He coached um, against Ole Miss in the Jackson Coliseum in year one or two of AK at Winthrop. I'm assuming you were in attendance for that. I was as a young middle schooler, I think. Middle schooler-ish? Yeah, I think I was like the uh, – the, the, I got the mop. Like, I was on mop duty somehow. I don't know how I got that gig. It's like a 10-year-old. But I was on the mop duty with somebody during that game uh, – and the Mississippi Coliseum is probably running up to Tad Pad at that point as well. Yeah, it's funny how things change through the years. I never made that connection. It was Greg Marshall in the building that night. You know, you mentioned your, your guy at Winthrop and, and, and P.J. Fleckish. There's, there's a solid chance that Minnesota comes open, right? Like, is it too good to be true? <laughs> oh, man, that, that connect the dots there. That would be something else. Uh, that'd, be a, that'd be a lot of social media and a lot of ESPN camera time there. All right, we'll go rapid fire before I let you get out of here. I have a couple list of teams that are not in that elite tier but are close, and you already covered one of them with Alabama. I'll kind of roll through maybe a couple more that kind of come to mind off of the top of my head, and you can just say in or out. First one, Ohio State. Um, I think I'm in on Ohio State. Villanova. Out on Villanova this year. Okay. Uh, let's see. What's a couple more good ones in here? Texas Tech, a very odd team that kind of has some veteran dudes. They're always tough. What are your thoughts on them? I think probably Sweet Sixteen-ish for Texas Tech this year. I don't. I don't think they got the run in them this year, but I think Beard will get them a game or two. Fair enough. We covered Alabama. There's ooh. Oklahoma State. Assuming this appeal doesn't drop. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Oklahoma State's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Boynton's done a really good job there. I think I'm in on Oklahoma State. And then I'll go across the state from them. That A team that I thought at times is like, I know this team may not be the most talented, but Jesus, they're tough as hell. And it was probably the end of Alabama peaking too early. Oklahoma, weird team, trending down right now, but could they right the ship? Yeah, I mean, you know, what – Lon Kruger's kind of – he's been to like four tournament – or he's been to the tournament with like four or five different teams. He hasn't made it far a ton, so I'm going to say one win for Oklahoma. Last one I got is a team that you mentioned fun to watch, very enjoyable. Uh, you don't really catch them a lot. USC. I'm in on USC. Awesome. That is uh, – that's all I got for you, dude. You gave me more time than I told you I'd keep you for, as always. This is always awesome stuff. Um, I really appreciate it. This was uh, this was fun. Maybe we'll come back in a week or two and talk about Ole Miss's second weekend opponent. 
Yep, absolutely. Well, I'll be I'll be at Bridgestone Arena uh, for the games this week. So if you see any curly-headed kid getting kicked out of the games, you'll know you'll know who it is, and we can reconvene after that. Check him out on Twitter at BrackenRay4, a, a good buddy of mine, one of the smartest, if not the smartest, college basketball guy uh, you'll uh, find. Uh, always great stuff, as always, man. I, I really appreciate it. This has been a hell of a lot of fun. Um, since I am in between editing softwares, as Brad mentioned, Bracken, I'm going to make him hang around and close the podcast with me. I appreciate everyone listening. We'll be back at it on Friday with some college baseball talk with Colin Brister. If you like what you're today, uh, rate and review the podcast. Subscribe. If you leave five stars, you can say whatever you want in the comments. Um, but I appreciate everyone listening. We'll be back at it on Friday. Thanks, dude. Have a good one. All right. You too.